like a Bible quizzer there, Pastor. Getting ready for this weekend coming. I was going to put a plug in there. If you have never seen any of our kids' Bible quiz, we will have, First Church will have four teams quizzing out of the 35 teams from across the state that will be here this weekend. And if you've never seen kids' Bible quiz, you should come Saturday and watch them. It is an amazing thing to see. It will blow your mind. I coach them, and they blow my mind every time we get together and quiz. The speed with which they can recall and the accuracy at which they have learned and done more than just learn that word. But they understand it, and they've hidden that in their heart, and I am so thankful for that, and I am excited about Bible quizzing. So if you, uh, if you have some time Saturday uh, to even just pop in and watch them a little bit, our kids would appreciate the support, but it would do you some good to see just what it is that they do. It's pretty awesome. And with that, we'll get into the Word for a few moments. We're going to be in the book of 1 Samuel this morning. Uh, we're going to start off with the ninth chapter. And I am fairly certain that I, a year or so ago, taught off of this same passage of Scripture and a similar message. So if you remember that, I'm sorry, you just have to remember it again. Um, but it was what the Lord laid on my heart this morning. So it's 1 Samuel, the ninth chapter, and we're looking at Saul this morning, um, first king of Israel, a man that we, we look late in his life most of the time and at all the mistakes, but I want to start out, and we'll get to some of those, but I want to start out this morning looking at the beginning of his life. We oftentimes forget that Saul was a man anointed by God, chosen by God, uh, Samuel was there and anointed him just like he did David. And, and I want to look at that a little bit and see maybe if we can determine just what happened to Saul. Um, not so much just to explore and point fingers at poor Saul, but to uh, maybe find a cautionary tale in there somewhere for ourselves. So we'll start out in the first Samuel, the ninth chapter. I want to start reading with the first verse. I'm going to read the first couple. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Becherath, the son of Aphia, a Benjamite, a mighty man of power. I could have started with verse 2 and saved a lot of tongue twisters. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a choice young man and goodly. And there was not among the children of Israel a goodlier person than he. From his shoulders and upward was he higher than any of the people. So we, we start out with this description of Saul here. And if I didn't have the the opinion that I have of Saul from reading, you know, the rest of 1 Samuel. Um, and, and this was all that it said about Saul in the Bible. I think, man, he was a pretty good guy. We read about him. In fact, it says, there was not a goodlier man than he. I mean, that's a pretty good guy. If we say that among the children of Israel, there's nobody gooder than he was. Goodlier, I assume that means pretty good. So we, we find this guy that the children of Israel, they begin to say, hey, we want a king. We want to be like everybody else, and we, we need a king, so find us a king. And God finally decides, okay, I'm going to, we, we've had a judge, and God's been your king for all this time, but you want a king, we'll give you a king. So we're going to find a king, and Samuel goes on this search, and we find Saul. And this young man, it's said, is gooder goodlier, better than everybody else. We go then to the 10th chapter, and I'm going to kind of jump through this for the sake of time this morning and not read the whole story of the 
donkeys that were lost and looking for them and all that. But we get to the 10th chapter. And the first verse says, Samuel took a vial of oil and poured it upon his head and kissed him and said, Is it not? Because the Lord hath anointed thee to be the captain over his inheritance. Now I, I routinely wonder if that vial of oil that Samuel held was the same one that he held. Probably was. I doubt he got a different vial every time he anointed somebody. Probably had the, had the same bucket he'd been carrying around. So I wonder if this, this jug of oil is the same jug that was there a couple chapters later when he goes to find Jesse. I wonder if this vial of oil has been around for some sacrifices, been around for some times that Samuel's doing the other work and the other ministry of God. I don't think the oil that Saul was anointed with is any different than the oil that David was anointed with. Probably wasn't any different than the oil that Saul used in his other duties as judge. As he's anointing and praying and sacrificing and making offering to God, probably the same vial, the same oil. And so I don't think the oil is any different. And I don't think the anointing that went with it, certainly Saul was the, or Samuel was the same, the same guy that anointed David. And we look at David and we see how that turned out. And Christ is of the lineage of David, yet not of the lineage of Saul. What happens? Why is the anointing of Saul any different than the anointing of David or of any others that we find. And so I don't think the anointing is any different. I don't think that Samuel was any less of a, a judge or a prophet that he was at the time of anointing Saul than five chapters later, six chapters later that he's anointing David. I don't think he was any different. God certainly was the same God. And we take all of this and we find that the same God that anoints David, the same God that is King of Kings, Lord of Lords, Creator, Alpha, Omega, beginning, end, first, last, that we find is the same yesterday, today, and forever, the same guy that's there to anoint David, the same power that we find for all of the judges, the same God that his anointing is over the prophets, the same God that we find pouring his spirit out in the New Testament. And yet somewhere with Saul, he fell by the wayside. We want to learn a little more about him. So we dig a little deeper to say, what else, what else can I find with Saul? What has gone wrong? And I go to the 10th chapter a little further, and I get to verse 23 and 24. It says, and they ran and fetched him. He was hiding. He was a meek person. And they, when he stood among the people, he was higher than any of the people from his shoulders and upward. And Samuel said unto all the people, See ye him whom the Lord hath chosen, that there is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted and said, God, save the king. So now this young man that's been found to be a goodly young man that a short time ago was out looking for dad's lost donkeys, he's now been anointed king. But even when they come to look for him, if we back up just a couple verses there, we'll find that it says he was hiding amongst the stuff. He says, I'm not sure I'm cut out for this. I'm going to go hide a little. He was a, maybe a lowly, a meek person that they find him and they bring him forward and they begin to shout, God save the king. The people are 
excited about this king that has been placed over them, chosen by God. In the 11th chapter, he's actually made king, and before that there's a fight with the Ammonites, and after that fight with the Ammonites, and Saul has slew them, they remember some people that said, ah, how can, how can Saul be, this man, be king over us? He is one of us. How can he just be anointed and all of a sudden he's the king? And, and so they get to, in the first decision, I find Saul make as king, is in verse 12 and 13 of, uh, of the 11th chapter. And the people said unto Samuel, Who is he that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring them in that we may put them to death. He said, find the guys that, that said, Saul can't be our king. Who is he to be king? He's just one of us. Go find those guys because maybe they didn't understand that Saul was anointed of God and, or who he was. They were talking back to what God was doing through Saul. So just bring them and let's kill them all. And Saul answers. Before this, we'd seen him fight some here, but I hadn't seen him really... Um, make any decisions or be acting in his manner as king. But he says, this day, there shall not be a man be put to death this day, for today the Lord hath wrought salvation in Israel. Samuel said to the people, come, let us go to Gilgal, renew the kingdom there. The people went to Gilgal. There they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal, and there they sacrificed sacrifices and peace offerings before the Lord. And there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. So they're going to bring these guys and they're going to kill them. And Saul says, wait a minute. God's brought victory today. There's no need for anybody else to die today. We've already killed all the Ammonites. These are our people. There's no need to kill them. And he begins to show some mercy to these individuals. So now we are looking at this guy. And there again, let's say we stop reading of Saul the end of chapter 11, and what we know of him is that he was good, that he was anointed, that he was chosen of God to be king, and that he was a merciful ruler. That is not the Saul, Pastor, that I think of. When I go to reading and looking into Scripture, that's not the Saul that I think of, and I'm going to pause in the story of Saul there for just a moment, but how often do we look at just the beginning of a story And we let that tell the whole story. But we have to have the rest of the story to know how it ended. And it's so easy as Christians, as apostolics, the the Christian world certainly is believe on Christ and you're saved. And we stop there and that's... But we have to continue to follow the rest of Scripture. We have to live the rest of that life. And we see the plan of salvation laid out in Acts 2.38. And as... As apostolics, are generally our, our viewpoint, if we're not careful, is, okay, repent, be baptized in Jesus' name for the remission so your sins can be washed away. God will fill you with the gift of the Holy Ghost. We read that there. We saw it happen at camp meeting this week. As we saw, it was just awesome to be there Friday night and see on the screen as they're taking people over to the swimming pool and baptizing them at the Coliseum. That was cool to me. And we... We see that, and if we're not careful, that becomes our focus. So it's like, okay, you've you came to God, and you've been baptized in Jesus' name, and you've been filled with the gift of the Holy Ghost, and that's awesome, that's important, and that is definitely where we have to start, but it doesn't end there. 
And we look at this story of Saul, and if we look at just the start, and we say he's a good guy that was anointed of God and a merciful ruler, and he was the king that God had placed to be over his people. And I stopped the story there. It's just like saying, well, came in and repented, and you're baptized, you're baptized, and all your sins were washed away, and you're filled with the gift of the Holy Ghost, and woo, heaven's our home. But I have to make it from that day, I guess. If the only way we can guarantee that is if I bring my stabbing sword that we talked about, I think that was Wednesday night, and we just, uh, as soon as somebody starts speaking in tongues, we just run them through with the sword, and pitch them to the side, and they're going to make it. It would guarantee it, I guess. I don't think it works that way. I don't think it's recommended. But otherwise, we've got the rest of time on the earth, and we continue to walk, and we continue to be human. And as we continue to be human, we continue oftentimes to make mistakes. And as we continue to make mistakes, we continue to find need for the mercy and for the grace of an almighty God. Brother Will, I'm thankful this morning for that mercy, for that grace. I'm, I'm thankful that if I, uh, if I find a place that I trip up, that he's there for me. And I think sometimes if I'm not careful, I look and I say, okay, we've got to this point where we're good. This person's got there and they're good and this person's got there and they're good. And I've got here and I'm good and I've got to remember that I have to focus that the rest of my life be a testimony to who he is. I've got to focus that I continue to have relationship with him. How did I get to that place? It was, I got that start by beginning a relationship with him. Saul got to where he was by being goodlier than all the other people. God picked Saul because of who he was. Samuel was anointing Saul because Saul was goodlier than all the people. We get to that place of anointing, that place of him being made king, that place of him being a merciful ruler because of him being goodlier. But then something begins to change in Saul. When we get to the 15th chapter, and we're not going just, just a couple pages, and Saul, Saul starts disobeying some commandments. The 15th chapter, and I'm going to paraphrase most of it, but they're, they're fighting the Amicalites, and uh, they're going to battle, and God tells Samuel, and Samuel tells Saul, hey, when you go there, you've got to pretty much wipe out everything here. Don't save anything for yourselves. Don't bring anything back. That's, that's not what we're doing. This is very similar, if you were here Wednesday night, as we talked to about the children of, Israelites, of Israel going into Jericho, and they were stabbing and grabbing. They were, weren't to bring anybody back. And the gold came back, and it went to the temple, but they weren't to keep anything for themselves, and that was where Achan failed. But Saul's been told here, you don't need to bring anything back. That's not what we're doing here. And Saul disobeys the commandment of God because he thought that he saw something better than what God saw. I know God said that we need to kill everybody and everything and not bring anything back, but wouldn't it be great if we, it would look so good we could just parade their king around. We don't have to kill him. We can bring him back and just show just how great we are. Maybe, maybe his mindset says show just how great God is. We're going we're gonna to do this our way. I know God said to do that, but what I really want to do is 
this. I know the scripture says to do such and such, but I really, this is what I want to do. And and now we're starting to step on our own toes if we look real close, because this starts relating to my life a whole lot. God says I need to do this, but what I really want to do, I'll be honest, there's a lot of Sunday mornings I get up, and what I really want to do is either not get up, more more likely for me a lot of Sunday mornings, it's uh, it's either winter time and it's rainy and I'm wishing Pastor I could be in a duck blind, or Brother Clyde, it's fall time and that crisp air is there and it'd sure be awful nice to be in that tree stand. Or it's summertime and it's a beautiful day and I'd love to be sitting on that motorcycle listening to it and, and the wind whipped past me and the sun on me. There are things that I would like to do a lot of Sunday mornings. And sometimes I get up and that, that kind of hits my back of my mind, man, it'd be an awful pretty day for such and such. Now generally I prefer that statement to be made as I'm walking in the doors of the church house. Man, it'd be a pretty day to be doing whatever, but here we are because I'm here to serve God. And regardless of the weather, regardless of the day, regardless of what's going on, there's nothing greater I can do than serve Him. There are times that I'm, and I'm using Sunday mornings because it's a, an easy and a light subject, but there are things in life that our flesh wants to do or things that God wants us to do that our flesh doesn't want to do. And we begin to hit that mindset or that thought, I know God says this, but what I'd really like to do is this. And then we get to a place that maybe our relationship isn't quite what it should be with God. Maybe we haven't been praying quite like we ought to be or haven't been keeping our flesh under submission quite like we should have. And all of a sudden the time comes and God's saying this and it's not, man, I'd sure like to do that, but God's saying this and we're just doing that. And we find our place in this place of disobedience, this place that Saul found himself here as he has disobeyed the commandment of God. We find a couple places of disobedience. We find this place with the Amicalites. We also find that Saul goes to go to battle, and as he goes to battle, he's supposed to wait on Samuel to get there to make the sacrifice. And he knows he's supposed to wait on Samuel to make the sacrifice, and he, he knows that Samuel is God's chosen one to make the sacrifices, but he says, wait a minute. I know Samuel's the guy, but I was, wasn't I also chosen? Wasn't I also anointed? I mean, I'm the king. I can kind of do what I want. So he goes ahead and makes that sacrifice on his own. Samuel shows up, says, what in the world have you done? It's through circumstances like this that we get to the 15th chapter in verse 26. It says, And Samuel said unto Saul, I will not return with thee, for thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord hath rejected thee from being king over Israel. Saul got to a place that God turned to him and said, I can no longer certify you as who I anointed you to be. And when that happened, the anointing was pulled off from Saul. And we, we know that it was pulled off from Saul because shortly after, in the 16th chapter, in the first verse, the Lord sends Samuel to the house of Jesse in the town of Obed-Edom. 
We know the story. There's a bunch of sons there, and they bring a dozen or so in, and they're Saul, Samuel's asking each one, God, is this the one? Is this the one? Oh, look how big and tall and strong and powerful this one looks. Is he the one? And I wonder if God didn't wait simply because the big and tall one, the one that was seemed goodly and great, had been the last one that didn't work out so well. And they get through all the sons. He says, you've got to have another one. There's got to be one more. And it's, then he says, well, there's, there's the kid, David. I mean, we didn't even figure there was any chance you wanted him for kingies. We left him out to tend the sheep. They didn't think enough of young David to even bring him in when the man of God came to the house. He says, go get him. They bring in this little shepherd boy that's been out tending sheep and the anointing is then placed. That anointing that had once been on the head of Saul, the anointing of the king of Israel was placed on young David. And as he's anointed, we find something that happens because Saul has had that anointed pulled from him and he is missing what he felt when the anointing of God was in his life. And he begins looking for it. We know that because we find that throughout chapter 16 and chapter 18, he's getting David to come to his, into his presence, bringing him to the, his residence to have him come and play the harp for him. Begin to come and worship God in his presence because he couldn't feel that anointing that he had felt prior. He missed it so much he had to have David come and praise. But then he became bitter because the anointing wasn't there. So as David's playing the harp, he's one moment, I've got to have this here because the anointing that I had that was over my life that I felt that I can't feel anymore. At least I can get a touch of it when David's here to a bitterness of I can tell that he's been anointed to be the king and he's throwing the spear across the room at him. David has went from the goodliest of Israel, anointed king that is merciful and gracious, chosen by God, to a bitter, lost, murderous, really shell of what God had chosen to rule over his people. It doesn't take that long. I've paraphrased most of the story in about 12 minutes. We went from chapter 9 to chapter 18. In chapter 19, Saul's trying to kill David. Ten chapters of my Bible. Three or four pages there. And Saul has went from God's anointed to the murderer, or trying to be the murderer of God's anointed, lived out the rest of his days chasing David around, trying to kill him. It's not a one-time thing here. We find this throughout Scripture. The most notable, talking the anointing of Saul, the most notable to me that pops out of my mind is the calling of Judas. This I read in the fourth chapter, I think it is, of Matthew as Christ is calling the disciples. There's no different wording of what he does with Jews. He just lists off all their names. He calls his disciples and lists off 12 names. The only difference I read, and the only reason we read it is because we're reading something that was written after the fact, is that Judas Iscariot, the one that betrayed Christ. What was different about the calling that Christ gave to Judas 
than what he gave to save Peter. Peter also denied Christ. Both betrayed him. And yet we find Peter on the day of Pentecost. We find Judas dead in a potter's field. What happened there? What got to the place? I, I wonder if Judas's situation, if they didn't get so busy doing the work of Christ, doing the ministry of Christ. Judas, we've got to remember, he spent three years with Christ. He was the treasurer. He was collected and taken care of, making sure everything was going the way it ought to be, saying, hey, maybe we ought to get this and give to the poor. And we see some spots that maybe his priorities are out of order, but I think even in those places, he probably had a good intention. And yet we find Judas, this one that spent three years doing the work of Christ. You think because he was going to betray Christ three years later, he wasn't sent? It doesn't say they were sent out two by twos and one of them went by themselves because Judas that was going to betray him later stayed home. But they were sent out in pairs of two. I don't know who he was paired with. Could be that it was Judas and Peter walking together. Casting out demons and healing, doing the things that God sent him to do. I wonder if the stories that were told, if we had been there to watch, I wonder if we could see the work that Judas did for the kingdom. But we don't read that and we won't know that because what we know of Judas is that he walked up to Christ and betrayed him with a kiss. Christ talks and I read this verse Wednesday night, but I'm going to mention it again. He, he talks and he says, there will be those that at judgment day will say, God, we did miracles in your name. We cast out demons in your name. We did all these things for the kingdom. And he's going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. I know this sometimes stopping and looking at, at what could be if we don't do what we're supposed to do could be a, a sobering thought, but I don't think it has to be this morning. But I do think it's important that we stop from time to time and look. And I stop and I take a place for some uh, self-reflection to say, God, am I where I need to be? Lord, am I doing everything I need to do? I think David said something along the lines of, search my heart, search my soul. See if there be any wicked way in me. I can remember as a kid, spent a lot of time in my grandparents' home, especially in the summers. I'd generally get to go on Monday and most weeks get to stay through Friday. And it was, it was the, the greatest for me because I'd get up in the morning and breakfast would be on the table and I'd go run around the woods with a 22 all day and go catch some fish and get to play on a tractor a little bit and then come in and dinner would be on the table and lunch would be your, my grandparents ate at 8, noon and 5. Like Religiously, my grandfather knew that at five o'clock he'd be in his chair at the table. Somebody would call, and my grandma would get stuck on the phone. Prior to any of those times, is the funniest thing because he didn't stop him from being at the table at five o'clock or eight o'clock or noon on the dock. He'd, he'd be there sitting there. He was a man that was very, very scheduled. But I can also remember at about six every morning that I could begin to hear him praying and the, sitting in the 
recliner. He'd get up and make his way to the living room and my granny would go start the pot of coffee and she'd be praying in the kitchen and he'd go sit down in his recliner or if it was summer and it was pretty, he'd be in his rocking chair on the front porch or the swing on the back porch, depending on where the cows were so he could see them. And he'd start praying and I begin, I remember hearing every morning, every morning that I was ever in that home, Lord, search my heart today. God, see if there be in my In my heart, if there's anything wicked, anything you don't want in there today, Lord God, search me, Lord. I I can't recall a day that I didn't hear that. And if I were to go inside, and usually I was on the couch trying to get like a pillow over my head or roll over tighter in the blanket so I could tune it all out enough to get a little bit more sleep. But if I were to be listening on the other side towards the kitchen, I could hear the prayer in the kitchen start the same way. Now my granny, she was a little more fiery. And sometimes she'd be worked up and she wouldn't quite start it that way. And she'd be, she had a way of praying for people she was aggravated at. And sometimes she'd get in there and she'd start in, Lord, I need you to do this and I need you to take care of this person. You get, And she'd stop and, Lord, I'm sorry for that. God, search my heart. And then she'd begin to worship and then occasionally then she would get back to praying for the people she was aggravated at. And I know there was a lot of times that I was the subject of aggravated prayer around that coffee pot on a, of a morning. A couple times I got to hear it. I think maybe a little louder just because I was sitting there on the couch. But I wanted that to be a, a model for my life. That each day be, Lord, God, search my heart. Help me to be who you want me to be today, Lord God. I wonder if Saul had made that his start of every day. If Saul had began his days with searching his heart and making sure that God was God and Saul was Saul. Rather than getting some things out of order and beginning to make decisions on his own. There came a time later in life I was... Oh, married, had a couple kids, we were a pastor, and I had some things that were bothering me I was struggling with. And I went to my grandpa and I said, Paul, I'm, I'm doing all these things and I'm trying to do everything right. And he said, I just don't understand why it's not working the way I want it to. And he gave me a couple pointers that day. One was start each day with making sure that you're right with God. Get that relationship right. And then he said, how are you trying to define success? Because it sounds like you're trying to define it and not let God define it. He said, start your days. Once you've got right with God, ask God what he wants you to do that day. And at the end of your day, end your day asking God if you, and asking yourself if you did what God wanted you to do that day. If at the end of the day that answer was yes, then you were successful. Move on to tomorrow. If not, repent and then move on to tomorrow. I'm not going to say I've always kept those quite as close as I should have, but my goal every morning is, Lord, search my heart. Help me to be who I need to be today, God. Give me direction. Direct my path and my feet throughout my day. Put me where you want me and help me to respond how you'd like me to. Lord God, let me do what you want me to do. If I can do that every day, I don't have to worry 
so much about becoming the guy that's sitting there chucking darts at the ones that are still holding the anointing that I once felt. I don't have to worry so much about being Jesus, diving headfirst into Potter's Field because I made a mistake. I felt like I just couldn't come back from it. But I think each of us needs to make that a point in our lives, and I, I'm not saying we don't. I think sometimes it's just good that we focus on some basics. I think it has to be a point for each of us that it be a part of my day, a part of my relationship with God, because I'll be honest, if I'm not careful, my relationship with God can get a little transactional. I've got to do this, and I've got to do this, and Lord, I need you to touch this person, that person, that person. I need you to go through my prayer list. God, touch, touch pastor and touch our leadership team and these people were sick on the prayer list this week if you could heal them. And this person's got that going on. This person's got that going on. Lord, help me get this sermon ready for Sunday. We've got to do this, this, and this if we can do all that. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. i got to get to work. And our relationship with God, if we're not careful, becomes a, a transaction that is, I have to do all of these things with God. And all of the things have to be done, but... More importantly, first is, God, am I good with you? God, are we where we need to be? Because it's real easy to stand here and look at the things that need to be done. I keep catching this light fixture that I fixed on Thursday or wiggled so it would come on on Thursday. Really, I didn't fix it. I just wiggled it. Light bulb's new in it. And it's bugging me because that light fixture's off. And I know that needs fixed before Wednesday night. And I, and I think, well, I got to get to that, and I got to get these doors hung, and there's some paint on the stairs. I need to get that cleaned up. I've got to get this done and that done, and these things that all have to be done. About 20 light fixtures upstairs that are out. All this has to be done before the weekend. And Lord, if you can help me do all that, I need to pray for this person, that person. All this has to be done. And all of that does have to be done. And it will be done, but it can be done after. And I. We'll come in in the morning, and I'll start the coffee pot in my office back there. And before I get anything else done, before I take that first cup of coffee, I've got to sit there and I've got to say, God, am I who I need to be? Lord, if you can search my heart, you can look into my life. God, is there any wicked ways? Is there anything you don't like there? Help me be who I need to be for you. After that, I can get on with all the things that need done. But I think for each of us, it's important that we make sure that our anointing that we have, that that infilling that we get when the Spirit fills us for the first time is still there and just like it should be, and that we're still carrying that same fire and fervency that we did when we came to God the first time. Because everything else doesn't matter if my relationship is not where it should be. And I don't want to be like a Saul or like a Judas. I don't want to be in that place that I'm saying, but God, I did these things for you. God, I preached for you, and I, I prayed for this one, and they were healed, and I prayed that one through the Holy Ghost, and God says, depart from me. I don't ever want to get there. So let it be each day, Lord, search my heart. Thank you. Search my heart.